Well, good morning again, everyone, and welcome to worship again. Welcome to those of you who are joining us by video. It's great to be here with you. My name is Steve. I'm one of our pastors here, and glad to have this chance to learn and grow with you in the life and the teachings of Jesus. We're in week three of this series, week three of a four-week series called It's Complicated. We've been looking for and learning about hope and truth from Jesus in our relationships, whether we're single or whether we're married. I want to tell you something that happened to me this past week. I got to sit down with a group of people from our church family, a cross-section of people, single and married, kind of different circumstances of life. And we talked about some of the things that are happening in their lives, about what they're experiencing and what parts of life that are different from my own and different from each other, what they're learning about following Jesus in the circumstances of their life. And I learned so much from talking to them in that conversation. I was really blessed by that. And we recorded that. We made a video of that conversation. And that's going to be a big part of the message next week. And I just, I want to encourage you, don't miss that next week. Like the things that they said were so enriching to me. And I look forward to being able to share that with you next week also. This week we're here in this third week. That'll be week four. We're in the third week of this series. Each week we've been learning. We've been learning to unmask one more lie that we kind of come to believe, that we pick up throughout life. We call it a cultural lie. Been unmasking that and then replacing it with the truth of Jesus that's better for us, that gives us life. This week we're talking about complicated lie number three. Complicated lie number three is this. Love is the greatest feeling ever. Love is the greatest feeling ever. Here's what makes this one complicated and maybe a little bit dangerous. There's a kernel of truth in it. That's always what makes complicated and dangerous things dangerous, right? There's a kernel of truth in it. You've got to find it and see what relationship these things are supposed to be in. Here's why it's dangerous. Here's how it gets complicated. Sometimes in our lives, in singleness, we're looking for mates. We're looking for partners for loves in our lives. But we can form these really unrealistic and crushing and disappointing expectations. We pick up this lie from all kinds of love stories, books, movies, all kinds of stuff, that love is the greatest feeling ever. And somehow, someday, you will find the person who meets your every wish, who knows your every desire, who fulfills all of your longings, who knows all of your thoughts, who completes all of your sentences. And when you meet them, the sparks will fly, the fireworks will go off, the orchestra will strike up, and Cinderella and Prince Charming will take over all again. It's kind of an unrealistic and crushing way to live and a crushing set of expectations to put on other people. It's dangerous that way. I think it's dangerous for us in that way. I think it's at least and maybe even more dangerous in our relationships, maybe as married people, to think about the love that you might have in your relationship and think it should be the greatest feeling ever. It's dangerous even when things are going well. When things feel great, if that's what love is, there's going to be this anxiety, this constant insecurity. But I, I feel like that could change. And what do I need to do to make sure that my feelings never change? And what do I need to do to make sure your feelings never change? And what if they do? And there's this anxiety and insecurity that goes with it. But realistically speaking, that's not the only place we struggle with this. A lot of married couples are going to find themselves, a lot of marriages are going to find themselves in a situation where it doesn't feel like it once did, maybe. Man, things have changed. I don't feel a whole lot at all anymore. Does that mean that I have fallen out of love? Does that mean this whole thing is over and we should just admit it? It's dangerous. It's complicated. Sometimes married couples, someone in the marriage develops feelings for somebody else. And you have to ask yourself, or if it's you or if it's your partner, it can be scary. And you start asking, what, is, what does that mean? What am I supposed to do about that? Does that mean I'm supposed to act on those feelings? How do I handle that? What does it mean to be true to how I really feel or who I really am? It's complicated. It's a, it's a dangerous, complicated lie. Love is a part of human life. Feelings are a part of human life. But how do those things go together? And how do we live them out? How do we act on them in our relationships? 
Fortunately for us, we're not entirely left on our own to figure this out, to make up all these answers for ourselves. In the scriptures, we have the witness of the earliest Christians as they learned to receive and practice the love of Jesus in their very real everyday life relationships. And we have the example in the teaching of Jesus himself that's relevant in many ways here. So I want to start today in a place that might seem a little bit surprising, but it's, it's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church, kind of out of the context of what you might imagine right away. But it really, I think it can be very helpful. This is the, a letter that we now call Philippians. Paul was writing to a group of Christians in ancient Philippi. And uh, it's, it's striking to me how emotional, the, how full of feelings the opening of this letter is. Let me read you the opening few verses here. Paul wrote to the Philippian Christians, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. When you think about saints of old, St. Paul, is that the picture that you imagine? Longing and joy and affection, and I have you in my heart, and you are my joy. I, I need to be reminded of that sometimes. And then I ask myself, where does all that come from? Where does all that affection and joy and longing and nearness of relationship come from in, in their relationship? And we don't know everything about the history between Paul and the Philippian church, but we know some things. And a lot of what we know comes from another place in the Bible in the book of Acts that tells a lot of the stories of the very early church. And in Acts chapter 16, we hear about how Paul first came to meet the people in Philippi. If you're in a growth group, this passage actually, Acts 16, is in your growth group study guide this week. You're going to get to read it and learn from it for yourselves. But here in this context, let me summarize it for you briefly. At one point in his life, Paul experiences a call from God saying, you should go to Greece. It's called Macedonia, northern Greece. And in Macedonia is this town called Philippi. So Paul, Paul obeys this call and he goes to Macedonia and he comes to Philippi. And when he gets to this town, he goes looking for people that he might connect with, that he might be able to talk to and tell them about Jesus. And so he goes looking for, the Bible says, a place of prayer by the river. In, in ancient, uh, in first century Judaism, if there weren't enough Jewish people in the town to justify building a synagogue for themselves, they would just meet for prayer down by the river. And that would be a place where there'd be, living, there'd be running water, and they would think of that as living water. It was a sign of holiness and life and cleansing. And they'd go meet by the river, down by the river, to pray. Paul goes to the river, and he meets a group of women who've gone there to pray. And one of them, her name is Lydia. And Lydia, she was a dealer in purple cloth. She was a dyer of cloth, a textile merchant of some kind. Paul himself was a tent maker. He worked with canvas. I wonder if they had sort of a professional connection. Was that a way to start making some conversation to begin with? And he shares with Lydia about Jesus. He tells her about this Messiah that all of our people have been waiting for, how Jesus came and about his grace and his power and what he taught and the people that he related to and how he was crucified by the Romans, but then raised again from the dead by the power of God. Probably told her about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the Christian communities that are popping up all over in their manner of life together. And Lydia 
Lydia believes what Paul has told her, and she, she decides she wants to be a part of the Jesus people too. She goes to trust Jesus also. And Lydia and her whole household come to be Christians, and they invite Paul back to their house, and he stays with them. He has some traveling companions. Probably Luke is with him at this point, and also a guy named Silas. And so at least these three, they come and they, they stay with Lydia and her household. Who knows what they did together for how long? I'm sure they prayed together, they ate together, they stayed together. Maybe they sang hymns together. They, they, just, they just shared some life and some spiritual life together. Paul being Paul got himself into some trouble pretty soon thereafter. He was out in Philippi telling more people about the Lord Jesus. But that message and a particular kind of crisis and healing moment that you can read about in Acts 16 gets him in trouble. He causes some economic trouble for the local idolatry business. And if you want to cause trouble, cause trouble with money, right? So he caused trouble with money and causes a riot. Paul gets himself thrown into jail. He and Silas are in jail. Jails are not a nice place to be ever. In the first century, they call them dungeons, worse than ever, right? Paul and Silas are in jail. Some of you may have heard this story before. They are praying and singing hymns while they're in jail, while they're in this prison. From the first century until now, around the world, some of the greatest and most powerful witnesses to the truth of Jesus have been among the persecuted Christians and among martyrs when they have acted in this way with joy and grace and generosity even toward their persecutors. It happens still today and it happened right there in this prison. They're singing and they're praying and then there's an earthquake, probably a miraculous event of some kind. There's an earthquake. And the doors to the prison fly open, and the chains on the prisoners are busted open, and the jailer comes to see that the prison is open. The jailer, whose job it is, probably on pain of his own life, to keep the prisoners in prison, sees that the prison is open. He despairs. He's about to run himself through with his own sword when Paul calls out from inside the prison, hey, hold on a minute. Don't hurt yourself. We're in here. Everything's fine. And the jailer's like, why would you still be in there, right? And so he asks about, and then Paul and, Paul and Silas, probably Paul for sure, tells the jailer about Jesus, and he tells probably many of the same stories he told to Lydia, and he invites the jailer also to be part of this community. And the jailer says yes, and he, becomes, he believes in Jesus and joins the Christian movement. He and his whole household, and they're baptized as Christians. And pretty soon then, they kind of all are reunited with Lydia and with her people. And then who knows what they did at that point, more praying and rejoicing, they're back together again. And sometime shortly thereafter, Paul and his companions move on to another city to go tell more people about Jesus and his, and his way. And the ministry in Philippi is left with Lydia and her household and the jailer and his household and whoever else has come to believe in and follow the Lord Jesus during that time. That's one chapter in the book of Acts. And they, they shared together so much stuff of life. They shared together joy and pain and success and struggle and the imprisonment and prayer and worship and all kinds of things together as part of their life and a commitment to Jesus together. I think sometimes in life we think that feelings are the kind of thing that leads to actions. This, this is how love and feelings are related, that feelings will lead to our actions. And there's a nugget of truth that, that's, that certainly happens that way sometimes. But I think in stories like this and in many, many other examples, it's at least as true that actions lead to feelings. When we share experiences and commitment and history together, it creates an affection between us. And then, of course, it can also go the other way around and it cycles back and feelings will also lead to actions. Let me, let me read you a way that the, the great Christian writer C.S. Lewis described it this way. He often has a, a poignant way of putting simple truths. C.S. Lewis wrote, It is mistaken to think that the way to become loving 
is to sit around trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor or not. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not have even imagined himself liking at the beginning. It flows in this direction. I have experienced the truth of this in my life. I imagine many of you have experienced this in certain circumstances in your lives. I experience this in all kinds of different relationships. I experience it in my relationship as a pastor of this community. I have more feelings of love and affection for this community of people, for you, than I could have imagined having 10 years ago. It's because we've shared life together, because we've shared joy and struggle and prayer and all kinds of things in life together. I find this in my personal relationships. I find this is true in my marriage. I'm more deeply in love with my wife, Amy, now after 16 years of marriage than I was or even ever could have been on our wedding day, even though that's supposed to be the sparks and the fireworks and the climactic event, and in many ways that's true. But there's a different thing that happens after sharing and journeying through life together. And this can happen in lots of different circumstances in our relationships. In, in this moment, let me turn out from that example and focus on the example of marriage just for a moment. When I work with couples who are getting married here at our church, and some of you may have heard me say this to you specifically, so you can vouch for this, I, I tell couples who are getting married here that there are at least two different kinds of love that they need to know about as they're getting married. There may be more than that, but at least two that are relevant. On the one hand, there's the love that you feel that brings you together. On the other hand, there's the love that you promise with your words and your actions that keeps you together. There's the love that you feel, and then there's the love that you're promising to give whether you feel like it or not. And sometimes I think we get confused by the stories and the media and the culture that we're a part of, and we think that marriage is actually built on the first one. That if I feel enough love for you, if, if, that, if I feel strong enough for this person, then, then that's what marriage is built on. That'll bring us together in marriage. When I think it's more deeply true that marriage is the environment in which we build the second kind of love, the love that we promise to give in our words and in our actions. And it's possible to wonder when you talk about that, that difference, the distinction between how I feel and how I promise to act. You say, well, is, but is that being authentic? Is, is that real? If I'm promising to do something or act on something that's different than how I actually feel, am I saying that I'm going to be somebody that I'm really not? Am I just faking it? I, I would challenge you to ask whether or not one's feelings or emotions or even circumstances are really up to the task of being the best measure of who we most authentically are. I don't think they're up to the task. Who you most authentically are, you are most authentically who God says you are, a child of God for Jesus' sake and incorporated into his people. And in the context of a relationship like this, I think you more authentically are who you have promised to be. You're not a slave that's forced to react to whims of emotions and feelings and changes in circumstances. Instead, you are a full and free human being to honor the promises that you have made, that this is who I will be regardless of what feelings or circumstances change in the future. That's who I authentically am in this relationship. And that matters, knowing that as married people. Married people, some of you might be in one of those places that I described earlier. 
Maybe you're at a place in marriage where it just doesn't feel like it used to. Maybe you're not feeling a whole lot at all anymore, and you're wondering, is it just over? Should I just quit? Is it time to give up? I want you to know, first of all, that's not that uncommon. A marriage therapist friend of mine says that every married couple he's ever known gets to a point in their marriage where the things that brought them together are no longer enough to keep them together, and they have to decide what they're going to do from that point forward. This moment is not a death. This moment is an opportunity. This moment is an opportunity to turn toward one another and turn into the future that God is building in the relationship that you've built together. And some people will say, boy, this is, this is so hard. Should, if this is love, should love be this hard? Love shouldn't be this hard. And it makes me want to ask, why not? Why wouldn't it be hard sometimes? It's hard to learn to play a musical instrument. It's hard to learn to hit a slap shot or drill a three-pointer. Why wouldn't it be hard for people with a disease called sin, two people with a persistent addiction to self, to live together in a relationship of committed sacrificial love for somebody else? Why wouldn't that be a little bit hard? I think when that's hard, that's not a sign that you're doing it wrong. That's a sign that you're in the place where you're figuring out how to do it right. It may, it may be that you're in a place where your feelings are leading you somewhere else, where you're, one of you in your marriage, you or your spouse, has developed some feelings for somebody else. And that's a scary and a confusing time if you think that love is really the greatest feeling ever. And it may look like the grass is greener on that hill over there. And it's been said the grass always looks greener on the other side of the hill. But you know what? The grass isn't always greener on the other side of the hill. Do you know where the grass is greener? The grass is greener where you water it, right? And so if you cultivate those feelings, if you pay attention to those feelings, if you nurture that relationship, if you continue spending time with that person, you can make those feelings grow. You can make that grass look greener. Or you can do something wiser, and you can water the grass at home. You can choose to turn away from that relationship, and you can not spend time that's dangerous for you, and you can not cultivate those feelings, but rather fertilize and water the grass at home and cultivate by a pattern of committed action that relationship, and watch the grass and the feelings grow in that place. Love isn't the greatest feeling ever. I think it's way, way better than that. It's way better than that. I've been distinguishing today between love as a feeling and love as an action, and really they belong together in a certain kind of way. And the place where they go together, the place where we see them go together most perfectly and most powerfully is in the person and the life of Jesus himself. I think it's easy to miss this. It's easy for me to miss this when I read the stories of Jesus' life. But Jesus' love for other people was actually full of feeling. There's a story in the Bible about Jesus out teaching in the wilderness. Crowds came to him. He was teaching them about the kingdom of God. But they were far away from the nearest grocery stores and all the kind of places where they could buy food, and they were hungry. And before Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000, the Bible says he looked on them with compassion and then told his disciples to feed them. There was a time when a guy came to Jesus to ask, how is it that I gain access to the life of God that goes on for now and forever? How do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus gave him some teaching. But before Jesus came to the teaching, the Bible says in this small little comment that feels like a throwaway comment, but it's not, Jesus looked at him and loved him and then began teaching. In Jesus' life, it seems that he had an especially close and affectionate relationship with this one family, a couple siblings, two sisters and a brother. Their names are Mary and Martha and Lazarus of Bethany. A little group of us from church is traveling to Israel this week. We are going to be in Bethany in a few days. I'm looking forward to reflecting on the relationships of Jesus' life there. When Lazarus, during the course of their friendship, died, Jesus went to Bethany, and before he performed a miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, still it says in John chapter 11, verse 35, that in response to that grief, Jesus wept. I think Jesus' heart was moved 
with love for people, and that's part of a life of discipleship to Jesus. But the pattern of Jesus' love was a pattern of commitment and action for all the people in his way and for all the people in the world. Jesus gave his time, which is the most valuable resource anybody has. Jesus gave his time to people who were by any other measure not worthy of it. He risked his reputation for outcasts who weren't welcome in anybody else's company. Jesus gave his life. He died for sinners like you and me. As we reflect on the power of love in human life, what I want to invite you, first of all, to know and to do is to receive the love of Jesus for you. To know that at the places in whatever your relationship status is, at those places where you might be tired, weary, broken, all dried up on the inside, hopeless, to know that it's exactly in those circumstances and not when those circumstances change, but even in the midst of those circumstances, that God's love is for you and that the embodiment of God's love among us is Jesus Christ, that he came to show us that love and to carry it out for us. And his love is for you. And that for all of us who are brothers and sisters of Christ and everyone who brothers, all of us who are brothers and sisters in Christ, the words that God spoke to Jesus, the firstborn among us, the words that God spoke to Jesus are true for all in Christ. And that is God saying to you, you are my child whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. That, that's who you most authentically are. That's who we're invited to live like. That's what love is. That's what true love is. Not that we loved, but that God first loved us. And I invite you to receive and know that love and then to carry that love out in your relationships, in your singleness, in your community, in your friendships, in your marriages. Know that love, to carry that love out. To know that it's a spirit of Christ that meets us and fills us up, fills up our cup till it runs over. And that's how love pours out. Let's pray together for that love for us and in our, in our lives. Good and gracious God, you are love. You are love for your world. You are love for people. And God, I pray that you would reach into the broken and weary and discourage parts of our hearts into the brokenness in our relationships and that you would root our identity in you that we would know who we are, first of all, in and from you. And God, in the security of knowing your love and our place in your family, that you would make us loving in all the different ways that are appropriate and fitting to all our different relationships, that you would form the love of Christ in us for one another. Lord, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.